So this, as I assume you know, is the first of four undergraduate lectures on metaphor that I'm going to be giving this term. And as I say in the prospectus, uh, I'm going to look at a few of the main issues arising in philosophy of language and in aesthetics regarding metaphor. I'm not going to presuppose any background in either philosophy of language or in aesthetics uh, when delivering them. Uh, so there's going to be a few points where I'm going to review some things that might be familiar to some of you, less so to others. Now, metaphor has been a pretty popular topic uh, in both philosophy of language and aesthetics since uh, pretty much the 1970s. And there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, I should also say it's been quite a popular topic since that time in other disciplines, such as cognitive psychology. And as I say, I think there's a number of reasons for this. First of all, from a linguistic perspective, our account of how language works is going to be very seriously incomplete unless we have an account of how metaphor works. It's easy when thinking about metaphor to slip into the assumption that it's something that it's mainly used in poetry or very special contexts like that. But if you pay close attention to your own speech, uh, passage of writing that you read in completely prosaic contexts, uh, metaphor is very frequent. And so we shouldn't think of this as a sort of peripheral phenomenon like Cockney rhyming slang or anything like that. Uh, it's actually very, very common. So there's going to be a real hole in our account of language unless we have an account of how it works. And metaphor is found in a great many different languages. Uh, I'd be interested to know, I haven't been able to find any information on this, uh, but I'd be interested to know whether there are any languages that lack metaphor. But certainly languages very different from one another in other respects have metaphor. Uh, Chinese, for example, I understand has uh, metaphor. Uh, and so it's one, a very central phenomenon. Another reason that has struck a lot of people, as we'll discuss more in later lectures, is that many people have thought uh, that metaphor is actually indispensable for talking about certain things. So the attractive thought to a lot of people is that there are some areas or domains that we can only discuss by speaking non-literally or by not saying uh, something true. So there's something kind of pleasing about that kind of paradoxical sounding view. Among the areas that have been proposed as candidates for this are uh, reasoning of using certain scientific concepts. So some people in the philosophy of science have claimed that metaphor plays a very important role in articulating theoretical concepts like currents of electricity, for example, or a lot of concepts in psychology metaphors of the memory as a kind of opening of a computer file, things like this. And I'll get into some of the reasons people have offered for this view later on. So too, a lot of people have thought that descriptions of experiences or of the phenomenology of experiences is particularly prone to being metaphorical. And some even claim that at a certain level of specificity, at least, you need to use metaphor to describe, for example, how a wine tastes or how an artwork looks. And as we'll see in the last lecture, this has been a large topic in aesthetics. 
the prevalence of metaphor in art criticism has attracted a lot of attention in the past few decades, and it's elicited some very interesting views on what the significance of the use of metaphor in art criticism is. And so, as I say, some people have taken the prevalence of metaphor in these areas to suggest that certain things can't be talked about without metaphor. Others go so far as to say certain things can't even be thought about without metaphor. So that on these views, metaphor shouldn't be thought of as a way merely of expressing thoughts, but actually of a medium uh, in which certain things are thought. And a final reason, uh, and this is certainly not meant as an exhaustive list, why metaphor has attracted so much attention, is that understanding metaphor seems to hold out the prospect of understanding why poetic uses of language are valuable, and indeed what's different about the way in which poets use language. So although I said metaphor is certainly not restricted to poetry, it's a common assumption, a natural enough assumption, to think that there's something distinctively poetic about metaphorical or figurative language more generally. And so if we understand how it works, and in particular why it's valuable, why we use it, then we'll be in a better position to understand the value of poetry. Now it would be natural at this point to give a definition of metaphor, an account of what exactly our subject matter here is. Uh, but it's actually surprisingly difficult to do this without stepping on toes in a kind of neutral way. Uh, can certainly give familiar examples of it, so very tired example in the philosophical literature, Juliet is the sun. Uh, you can have metaphorical adjectives in the what's called the attributive position instead of the predicative position in that case, uh, such as shining Achilles, Homeric metaphor. You can address people with metaphors, so there's a passage in the first part of Henry IV in which Prince Hal addresses Falstaff as Woolsack because he's so fat. Um, metaphor has a great deal of flexibility, uh, grammatically anyway. Uh, and this makes it somewhat difficult to give a characterization in those terms of it. But of course it also gives, also makes, it is also difficult, I should say, to characterize it in semantic terms because that's one of the main issues that arises about metaphor. Now, when I was in school, metaphors were distinguished from other figures of speech. So, metonymy is another figure of speech in which a word for a part is used to stand for some whole. So, for example, when we talk about, when we say all hands on deck, it's a metonymy, I was taught, not a metaphor. Uh, sometimes using a part, term for a part for a whole is called synecdoche, metonymy restricted to uh, more restricted relations, uh, other kinds of relations of things associated with what you're designating. So some would want to restrict the notion of metonymy to phrases like the White House to describe the U.S. government or the position of the U.S. government. Uh, so I think it's important to bear in mind, and that's obviously not an exhaustive list by any means of the figures of speech there are, that metaphor may not be the only figure of speech. And I personally think uh, that it's very important to keep that in mind. Uh, the sort of school definition uh, that a lot of people are given is that a metaphor is an abbreviated simile with the word like or as removed. 
That view has been surprisingly unpopular, as we will see, surprisingly in my view, uh, unpopular in philosophy. Uh, but I think there's a lot to be said for that, and we're going to be going into it in a lot more detail in the next lecture. Okay, so whatever metaphor is, and whatever, whether it's entirely a linguistic phenomenon, how, how similar it is to other features of speech, it's at least a linguistic phenomenon, whether thoughts can be uh, had in metaphor or not. At the very least, it's a linguistic phenomenon. And so in these first two lectures, I'd like to get into some of the linguistic issues that metaphor raises. And to introduce these, I would like to give a bit of background uh, to make some of these issues intelligible. So the first notion that uh, I'd like to introduce, or at least review for you, is that of a proposition. And I think the quickest way to get a handle on this notion is with the following observation. Uh, so it seems pretty clear that the things we say are distinct from the sentences we use to say them. So a reason for thinking this is that it seems possible to say the very same thing using different sentences. So the sentence, snow is white, is a different sentence from the French sentence, la neige est blanche, but it's possible to say the same thing using those different sentences. So this seems to be a good reason to distinguish the things we say from the sentences we use to say them. It also appears that the things we say can be believed or known or be the objects of what are called propositional attitudes. So I can say what I believe or uh, I can say what I know, I can believe what you say, these kinds of locutions seem to be asserting an identity between the thing I said and the thing I believe, or the thing you said, the thing I believe. So the term proposition is the term generally used to designate the things that can be said, believed, known, etc. That's one point about propositions. Another point, important for our purposes, and particularly important for understanding a lot of the literature on metaphor, if you're new to this kind of stuff, is that propositions have been regarded by many, at least, as the meanings or the contents of a number of different things. For example, they've been regarded as the meanings or the contents of sentences, or at least sentences as used in certain contexts. So the thought on this view is that the meaning or the content of the sentence snow is white is the proposition that snow is white. So too, they have been regarded as the contents of utterances of sentences. So the content of my act of saying snow is white, at least when I mean it literally, is the proposition that snow is white. Likewise, they have been regarded as the contents of certain mental states. So, once again, the content of my belief that snow is white is the proposition that snow is white. Now, you notice the way I refer to propositions here, and this is the standard way of doing so, and the way of identifying whether we've got a proposition on our hands or not, 
is with what's called a that clause. So we can refer to the proposition that snow is white by calling it the proposition that snow is white or indeed just saying that snow is white is the proposition that I believe. So propositions, very important. Uh, I've been struck in tutorials anyway uh, by the fact that some people don't know what a proposition is or are unfamiliar with this terminology. Uh, so I think that's very important to get clear on at the outset. Second point uh, that I'd like to draw your attention to is this. So if you've got something that has propositional content, such as a sentence, as used at least in a context, you can ask, question arises, what determines what its propositional content is? So what makes it the case that the sentence, snow is white, has the proposition that snow is white as its content, as opposed to the proposition that grass is green? So too, you can ask this about utterances on an occasion of a sentence, so on and so forth. And obviously the answer to this question of what determines what a thing's propositional content is, is going to depend on what the thing you're asking about is. But pretty good candidates, in a lot of cases anyway, are such things as the following. In the case of sentences, it's the one thing, at least, that determines what proposition is the content, are the words, are the meanings of the words in the sentence. So it's due to the meaning of snow, of is, and of white, that the sentence in which those words occur has the propositional content that it does. Another thing, at least in the case of sentences, seems pretty obvious, is the order in which those words occur. The, or at least the way in which they are combined. That's why it has that proposition as its content, as opposed to some other proposition, or no proposition at all, as would be the case if you just jumbled up the words in a different order, perhaps. So, too, various facts about the context in which a sentence is used often determine what proposition at least what proposition is communicated, and sometimes what proposition is expressed on that occasion. So indexical words like I or today, when they occur in a sentence, it's at least in partly in virtue of facts about the context in which that sentence is used that determines what the propositional content of the sentence on that occasion or of your utterance is, depending on how you view it. So when, on one view of propositional content, if I say, uh, I am here, I've expressed the same proposition as could be expressed by someone who said, uh, Jim is there. Now, we've used different sentences. Uh, but in virtue of facts about the context in which I use my sentence, I express that proposition. And in virtue of different facts about the context in which you used your sentence, you express the very same proposition. And there's other reasons why context, facts about the context, can determine what proposition uh, is the content of 
what we're concerned with. Words can have more than one meaning, so context is often needed to disambiguate uh, which meaning is in question. And so you can see that it is a fairly complicated issue. There's a whole number of factors that are going to be uh, necessary to take into consideration when you're considering this. So what determines what something's propositional content is? That's the second notion to get a handle on. Or at least this second type of question that one can ask, one can ask about these sorts of things. The third notion is the ways in which a proposition can be communicated. One way in which you can communicate propositional content is by saying it. So I introduce the notion of a proposition by saying that, among other things, propositions are things that can be said. But saying them is not the only way of communicating them. You can insinuate that snow is white or imply that snow is white in certain contexts uh, without saying it. So there's a great many different ways of communicating propositional content apart from directly, explicitly saying that content. So those three notions, proposition, what determines the content, ways of communicating the content. I want to familiarize you with right at the outset uh, as background for a range of the questions that are asked about metaphor. <clears throat> so now I'd like to just summarize the questions that we're going to go through in these four lectures and then get into the first of them. So the first question uh, that arises about metaphor that we're going to deal with is do metaphors have a special propositional content? And by special propositional content, I mean uh, meaning or content other than the meaning or content that the same sentence would have if it were used literally in the same context. This is a question that, as we're about to see, has attracted a great deal of attention. It might seem obvious that metaphors have a special meaning, or, as I've been phrasing it, a special propositional content. It might seem obvious that when Romeo says Juliet is the sun, his metaphor means something different from what would be meant uh, by a literal utterance of the sentence, Juliet is the sun. Donald Davidson, as we'll see, denies this. He says that the only content or meaning that metaphors have is the meaning of the words of the sentence uh, is the meaning that those words would have if given their most literal interpretation given the context. Very radical view, um, and it's been a very, very influential paper, probably the most important paper in philosophy on metaphor, something you certainly need to be familiar with if you're revising this, either for philosophy of language or aesthetics. And that's what he's best known for in that paper. So he answers no to this question, a lot of other people answer yes. And if you do answer yes, you can ask the kinds of questions that I discussed earlier. 
which is the second one, which we'll be discussing next week, is what determines what the metaphor's special propositional content is. Seems that we're going to have to give a different account uh, of this if we believe in that special propositional content than we could give for literal utterances. So too, we can ask, how is this content communicated? So what are speakers doing when they communicate this content with a metaphor? Another very natural view would be to suppose, well, whatever way in which they're doing it, they're definitely not saying it. So Romeo, when he uses the metaphor, Juliet is the sun, is maybe communicating one way or the other that Juliet is beautiful, glorious, the center of his world, so on and so forth. But whatever he's communicating, he's certainly not saying what he is communicating. This common sense view as well uh, has been challenged, uh, as we'll see. Further issue, which we're, uh, so we're going to deal with that one in the third lecture. Another issue we're going to deal with in that lecture is whether the special propositional content of a metaphor can be given in a paraphrase, and particularly in a non-metaphorical paraphrase. So this relates to that set of issues that I mentioned at the beginning. One of the reasons metaphor intrigues a lot of people or has been regarded as very worthy of study is the thought that it is indispensable for the communication of certain truths. And this is an issue that really straddles <clears throat> aesthetics and the philosophy of language because, of course, if metaphor is important for the communication of certain truths, such as truths about our experiences, uh, feelings, thoughts, things like this, mental life generally, uh, then that would give a very obvious reason why it's valuable. If there's certain facts about our mental lives that couldn't be communicated <clears throat> without metaphor, uh, then we have a very clear answer to people who historically have doubted the value of poetry, notably Plato, who doubted the cognitive value of poetry, People are excited about this notion about metaphor because it seems to provide a very direct answer to people like Plato. And the last question, which we're going to deal with in the last lecture, is uh, regards the significance of the use of metaphor in art criticism especially. So metaphor has, the significance of metaphor in various areas has been asked about in a great variety of areas. Uh, I'm going to focus on its use in art criticism because that's elicited quite a number of different views, uh, some very interesting views, as I say. Something that it indicates something very fundamental and surprising uh, about aesthetic experience. Different people give different answers as to what exactly that is. People like Roger Scruton, for example, think that the use of metaphor in descriptions of music such as descriptions of melodies rising and falling, uh, uh, chords as open or closed, spatial and movement metaphors in music, according to Scruton, indicate that we are actually incapable of hearing sound as music unless our experience is imbued with metaphor. That is, unless we hear sounds in spatial or movement terms.
as moving, rising, falling, being open, being closed, etc. And that's certainly not an obvious view, and it's very interesting if it's true. Uh, that this is what makes the difference between hearing mere sound and hearing music. And as we'll see, there's a number of other views, but Scruton is certainly the most prominent uh, representative of those who see significance to the fact that metaphor is prevalent in criticism. Okay, so that is the plan for these four lectures. So now I'd like to get into Davidson's views. Now, I think you can distinguish, as I've done on the handout there, uh, between six different views he defends in that paper. And I'll just go through them in summary form and then get into his arguments for them. So the first, and this is important to note, is that metaphors are not meaningless. I'm told that some people historically have claimed this, that <coughs> metaphors actually have no meaning. That's not Davidson's view. Metaphors have a meaning. They mean what the words of the sentence, as he puts it, in their most literal interpretation, and as it emerges later, given the context, mean. What the words of the sentence, in their most literal interpretation, given the context, mean. But the radicalness of his view comes in in saying this is all they mean. So they don't have a meaning apart from this. Romeo's metaphor means exactly what would be meant by literal utterance of the sentence, Juliet is the sun. In terms of how speakers are communicating what they do, Davidson takes line unsurprising. Metaphors and speakers of metaphors say nothing apart from this. That is, apart from the meaning that the utterance of the sentence would have if it were uttered literally. And a fourth view, and not a lot of people pay as much attention to this view as I think they should, but he clearly places a lot of stress on it at the end of his paper here, is that this is not just a claim about the meaning of metaphors. He says, I'm not just being rigorous about how I'm using the word meaning when saying that metaphors don't have a meaning apart from what he's identified. He's saying, it's at least, and he is cautious about this initially, somewhat less cautious later. He says, it's at least a false as a full account of metaphor to say that there's even a proposition associated with a metaphor that it's the speaker wishes to convey and that the interpreter must grasp if he's to get the message. What he means by saying that it's false is a full account of metaphor emerges, as I say, a bit later. He thinks, first of all, much of what metaphors get us to notice is not propositional. And in the case of at least some metaphors, he doesn't tell us how many or how frequent he thinks this is, but in the case of at least some, they don't have any propositional content even associated with them that our grasp of which could constitute our understanding of it or which the speaker of it wants to convey to us. So in the case of Romeo's metaphor, it's not just that its meaning is not Juliet is beautiful, grand, etc. Those propositions are not even associated necessarily with the metaphor. 
I say not necessarily because he doesn't talk about that particular example. Uh, but certainly that's true, he thinks, in the case of a range of metaphors. Those are his negative views on metaphors, for which he is best known. But his positive views have also been influential. So one of his positive views, he says, metaphors have no special meaning, but they obviously have special effects on us, and a good account of metaphor ought to account for what these distinctive effects are. Say what they are, say how metaphors work these effects. And he says, metaphors certainly do make us notice a likeness between one or more things. But he says, we shouldn't conclude from that, as we'll see, that this has anything to do with some special meaning or content that it has. A bump on the head, as he puts it at one point, can also make you notice something. But not by standing for a fact or expressing a fact. Metaphors in particular do not just make us notice a likeness, but they make us see one thing as another. This has been a very popular view, as we'll see, in terms of trying to account for the effects of metaphor. So Romeo's metaphor, Davidson thinks we should say, makes us see Juliet as the sun. That's the distinctive effect that it has. Why is that interesting? Uh, well, he thinks this has, relates to a very familiar phenomenon, most familiar to readers of philosophy from Wittgenstein's discussion of the ambiguous duck-rabbit diagram in the Philosophical Investigations, uh, which is a picture of the head of a duck, which can also be seen as a picture of a head of a rabbit. So in that case, it's a, the example is complicated a bit because that's an ambiguous one that can be seen in two different ways. But this is a general phenomenon, according to a lot of people. We see, when we see a chair and recognize it as a chair, we see it as a chair. You could have fanciful cases of this, though. You can look at a cloud and see it as a lion, or see it as a monster, what have you. Davidson thinks the wonder of metaphor, the distinctive effects that it has, are effects of these kinds making us see one thing as another. That's his view in outline. His paper is characteristic of him, very, very densely argued. And a great deal of it is taken up with attempting to eliminate rival views on metaphor. So views about what the special meaning or content of metaphors is. Uh, I'm largely going to skip those for today because next week I'm going to address a number of them or mention a number of them when discussing some of those rival views. I'm going to discuss Davidson's objections to them. Uh, but just, so just bear in mind, this is not a complete line-by-line -line account of Davidson's paper uh, and that there is this large part that we'll get into next week. But in terms of positive arguments for his view... One of them is to the effect that the claim that metaphors have a special meaning or content is not needed to explain anything. So he thinks you might suppose that metaphors have a special meaning or content because of the distinctive effects that they have on us, how we respond to them. We're grasping a special meaning, you might think. 
But according to Davidson, this view is not needed to explain the distinctive effects that they have on us. It's not needed, in particular, to explain how it's possible for metaphors to alert us to aspects of the world by inviting us to make comparisons between two or more things. And to illustrate this, he gives the example of a poem by T.S. Eliot called The Hippopotamus, in which Eliot simply juxtaposes descriptions of a hippopotamus and the church. And the clear implication is that we're invited, thereby, to compare hippopotamus and the church. But it's very important for the success of Davidson's example that there are no metaphors, or at least of the relevant kind, in there, nor are there any explicit comparisons in there. So nowhere does Eliot say the church is like a hippopotamus or is unlike a hippopotamus, and so forth. But we're clearly invited to compare the two because these descriptions just happen to be juxtaposed in the right way, whatever the full story is. This poem manages to do that, to invite us to make these comparisons without having anything other than its literal standard meaning. We get it. We know what we're supposed to do. Davidson says, if it works there, why can't it work in the case of metaphor? It should weaken our confidence that metaphor must be working by having a special meaning. Another thing that Davidson uses to weaken this confidence is to point to simile. So, explicit comparisons uh, of one thing to another. If Romeo had said, Juliet is like the sun, he would have asserted that there is a similarity between Juliet and the sun. That's true. But he wouldn't have told us which similarities are there. His simile doesn't acquire some sort of special meaning or content uh, by which it communicates what similarities there are between Juliet and the sun. It simply invites us to look and see if we can find any. Very, very similar to what's happening with metaphor. Davidson is happy to align in certain respects metaphor and simile. One reason for this is that both of them quite clearly invite us to make comparisons. And it's quite evident in the case of simile, says Davidson, that simile does this without acquiring any special meaning. And by this, as I say, I think this has to be understood as meaning without telling us what the points of similarity are. So that's one thing that a special meaning is not needed to explain. Uh, another thing, Davidson says, is the effectiveness, the power of metaphor. Special meaning is not needed to explain this. And he says, just consider something like a joke or a dream. They can be, as he puts it rather vaguely, effective, uh, but without having some special meaning or containing some special statement that a clever enough interpreter could decode. They can have an impact on us, a joke or a dream, uh, but you don't need a special meaning in order to account for this. 
So this failure to explain anything is one problem he has with the view that metaphors have a special meaning or content. Another argument he gives, uh, and this is in particular in the section where he's arguing that there's not even associated with many metaphors a special content, not just that the content is not their meaning, concerns the nature of paraphrase. Paraphrase, Davidson says, is very difficult in the case even of the simplest metaphors. This is not what we would expect, says Davidson, if metaphors had associated with them a special propositional content, or as he puts it, usually in that paper, special cognitive content. He means something propositional by that. Or he, he thinks of cognitive content as propositional, I should say. So the thought is that if metaphors did have some special cognitive content associated with them, why should it be difficult, he asks, to set, to set it out? Can't we set it out in plain prose, at least if we're clever enough? Because isn't, aren't propositions exactly the sorts of things that plain prose is designed to express? So he disagrees with those who think that metaphors have some ineffable propositional content or a propositional content that could not be expressed in literal language. He thinks there's none there. If there was some there, it would be easy, at least if we were clever enough, to set it out. But typically, very, very hard to fulfill the request to paraphrase a metaphor, says Davidson. That, too, should make us doubt that metaphors have special propositional content. Now, that's a point about the difficulty of paraphrase. second point about paraphrase he appeals to is a point about the weakness of paraphrase as compared with the original metaphor. This is a point that's often remarked upon in discussions about metaphor. So if Romeo had said, well, Juliet is beautiful, she's great, that's pretty bland in comparison to what he actually said. And this is generally thought to count against the idea that such metaphors, or indeed metaphors for the most part, can be paraphrased. Paraphrase are, are typically lame and weak compared to the powerful, interesting, succinct metaphor. This, says Davidson, should make us doubt that there is any special propositional content associated with the metaphor. If you were setting it out, then it should be just as effective, just as powerful uh, as the original metaphor that delivered the same message to you in different words. So that's a sense of some of his positive arguments for this view. As I say, uh, it doesn't address his criticisms of other theories, which we'll do next week. And I think it's fair to say you can just tease out some other ones that are in his paper. Uh, but I'll leave that to you. Those are the only ones I'm going to discuss today. But what about his positive claims? So he's... Uh, he takes himself to have shut down the idea that metaphors have a special content or meaning. But he also has this positive claim, as I say, that what's distinctive about metaphor is that it gets us to see one thing as another. As these, this is the kind of special effect that metaphor has on us. 
And when we recognize this, once again, this should weaken our confidence that there's any reason to attribute special meaning to it. Davidson says, the claim that metaphor makes us see one thing as another also explains various facts about our attempt to paraphrase metaphors. So one fact, he thinks, about our attempt to paraphrase metaphors is that it seems as though there's no end to what we want to mention when we paraphrase a metaphor, or what we try to. He quotes Stanley Cavell, who is often quoted in this connection, explaining Juliet is the sun in the following terms. Cavell says, Juliet means, uh, Romeo means rather, that Juliet is the warmth of his world, that his day begins with her, uh, that only in her nourishment can he grow, and so forth. Davidson says, those are just a small subset of the properties that could be plausibly ascribed to Juliet in an explanation of that metaphor. And it's also striking that we do tend to add etc. or and so on at the end of our attempts to paraphrase metaphors. It's not clear that we're done a lot of the time. Uh, so that we are then inclined to add and so on and etc. This, Davidson says, indicates how we're very inclined to keep going on. There's no end to what we want to mention, as he puts it, when we attempt to paraphrase a metaphor. Why is this? Davidson thinks that his account of metaphor as causing us to see one thing as another accounts for this. So think about cases, says Davidson, in which you see things. It's interesting, this point is not essentially about seeing one thing as another. His example is of seeing a thing, so seeing a picture. If someone draws your attention to uh, the deafness of a line, he says in a Picasso painting, how many things have been drawn to your attention? How many things have you been made to notice? One, many, an infinity? Bad question, he thinks. There's indefinitely many things you've been made to notice, and any number of things could be mentioned in an account of what you're made to notice. If metaphor is acting like that, if it's making us see one thing as another, then, and if when we try to paraphrase a metaphor, we're trying to set out what the metaphor makes us notice, then we'd ex expect to be in a situation where there's no end to what we want to mention in attempting to paraphrase the metaphor. We're in a s the same situation when asked, what do you see? Well, I see the door, I see its color, I see its grain, and so on. Metaphor is like this, says Davidson. And this is a comparison a lot of people have drawn historically between metaphor and causing us to see things. Uh, you find it in Aristotle. He says certain metaphors are ex effective because they cause their hearers to see certain things, which I assume is cause them to imagine certain things or imagine seeing certain things. That Davidson takes to be one virtue of his view. Another virtue is that it explains the difficulty of paraphrase. And here Davidson does appeal to specific features of seeing one thing as another. 
that are not just limited to seeing. Davidson points out that to see one thing as another is different from seeing that something is the case. So I mentioned above that propositions are generally identified with what's called a that clause. And on Davidson's picture of this, when you're made to see that something is the case, so if you're made to notice that the cat is on the mat, what you are brought to notice is propositional in nature. In that case, a fact it has that kind of structure that can be expressed with a, uh, as is indicated by the fact it can be expressed with a that clause. What were you made to see? That the cat is on the mat. You can give a proposition in answer to that question when you're made to see that something is the case. Seeing as, says Davidson, is very different. If you see Wittgenstein's duck rabbit as a duck, as it's often put, or as perhaps it should be put, as a picture of a duck, then no proposition, says Davidson, expresses what I have led you to see. Now let's return to the case of metaphor. The request to paraphrase a metaphor is a request to give a proposition that is the content of the metaphor. Well, if the metaphor is not making us notice any proposition, then we would expect that to be awfully difficult. It's an impossible request to fulfill. If it just makes us see one thing as another, no proposition is going to express what it's made us notice. And so we would expect the request to give a proposition to be difficult to fulfill because it's impossible to fulfill. This, says Davidson, is another point in favor of his positive account of the effects that metaphors have. Okay. So Davidson's paper has generated enormous amount of commentary, a lot of controversy. Uh, particularly with reference to its negative claims about content and meaning. And I'll just go through a few of the problems people have with it, uh, large part to justify going on to assume that metaphors do have a propositional content, special propositional content, in the remainder of these lectures, and to ask questions about what determines it, and so forth. So, one early criticism of Davidson uh, was raised by Nelson Goodman and has been raised by a number of other people in various contexts. And Goodman says, well, the fact that paraphrase is difficult is not really a sign that the metaphor lacks special propositional content because lots of literal utterances are difficult to paraphrase. Uh, it's easy enough to forget this. Uh, so Goodman says that's no reason to doubt, obviously, that they have some special propositional content, nor is it in the case of metaphor. And of course, those who think that metaphors communicate something that can only be communicated with metaphor also are not going to be convinced by this argument. They're going to think it's precisely because it has a very special propositional content that you can't paraphrase it. That's a point about his 
considerations about paraphrase's difficulty. Uh, I think his argument about the weakness of paraphrase is not a great one. partly because it seems to assume that the strength of an utterance or the impact on you of an utterance is entirely a function of the content it has, the proposition associated with it or expressed by it. Uh, But that's not obviously true. So the least controversial example I can think of is the difference between using the active voice in writing and the passive voice in writing. So if you say, I hit him, that's more powerful than saying, he was hit by me. But it's plausible to think those different sentences express the same proposition. Uh, It's certainly plausible to think they state the same fact. Uh, If it's a fact, it's stated. Uh, But it's not a so it's not a function, the power of it is not a function of the proposition expressed the content expressed, but of the words chosen to express it and uh, the manner of combination of them. And I suspect that you could go through other sort of stylistic tips for writers uh, that are often given, like use the active voice rather than the passive voice, and you'll find many, many others where there's a difference in impact or strength and an alternative way of putting it is much weaker, but not because the alternative way of putting it doesn't express the same propositional content. Those are some objections to Davidson's arguments for his conclusion. They don't show, of course, that his conclusion is false. If they're successful, they show his arguments don't establish it. But a lot of people have taken issue with his conclusions. Richard Moran uh, has written a paper called Metaphor, uh, very good, worth reading uh, in the Blackwell Companion to Philosophy of Language. And he goes through a number of the criticisms that have been raised against Davidson. I think this one is his own. Uh, And he points out that to deny that metaphor typically has even associated with it a propositional content as Davidson does. Remember, not just that it doesn't have a special meaning but in many cases at least not even associated with it is there some propositional content uh, is to inherit all of the problems inherited by other forms of non-cognitivism in philosophy. So if you've done ethics you be familiar with the non-cognitivist account of ethical judgments, so to say that murder is bad is not to express a proposition, but to express an attitude or emotion. It's like saying boo to murder, which is not something that expresses a proposition, but does express an emotion. But this creates a number of problems if you take this view in that area, or here as with Davidson in the case of metaphor. For one thing, and, Dave, and Moran gives some other examples, but for one thing, it's very hard to understand what's going on when we disagree with a metaphorical utterance. So it seems as though if Davidson is right, uh, there's nothing for us to agree to or to dissent from apart from the literal content of the sentence. 
So if you don't think very highly of Juliet and you disagree with Romeo when he says to you, well, Juliet is the son, and you say, no, she's not, uh, you can't really make sense of that disagreement uh, in Davidson's terms. All you could be disagreeing with is the view that she's not a big celestial ball of gas. But obviously you're not disagreeing with that, uh, but you are disagreeing. And that seems to be a real drawback to Davidson's view. Uh, and it's the kind you can raise objections of this kind to all kinds of forms of non-cognitivism. Not saying that particular one to everyone, uh, but it does seem to follow in the case of the metaphorical version of it. And William Lycan has raised a number of objections to Davidson's view. So on Davidson's view, metaphors, as he puts it, just work like bumps on the head. They just make us see one thing as another. They make us notice various things. Uh, but this seems to make it impossible to misinterpret a metaphor. So in Lycan's example, if you overheard Romeo and you said, I get it, uh, Juliet is really stinky and awful, then on Davidson's view, if you were sincerely caused to think that, uh, then you weren't misinterpreting it uh, any more than you were misinterpreting a bump on the head. I should say Davidson's been defended on this point, uh, so I don't know if that's an entirely decisive objection. Uh, there's a paper by Marga Reimer, R-E-I-M-E-R, uh, called Davidson on Metaphor, which is worth reading if you're interested in this. But another point that Lycan makes, uh, I think, is a bit stronger. So Lycan reminds us that an enormous amount of what we say is metaphorical. If Davidson's right, then it seems to follow that an enormous amount of what we say is neither true nor even associated with some true propositional content. Uh, and that seems to be a very, another very damaging consequence of Davidson's view. Metaphor is not something peripheral. It's not, it's not restricted to context when you're trying to get somebody to see a cloud as a lion, anything like this. Uh, it's the language of every day. And if Davidson's right, then we're not even, uh, we're certainly not saying anything true, if Davidson's right, but we're also not even communicating in any other way some propositional content. So it's for reasons like these that people tend not to go with Davidson's view that metaphors have some special content, uh, that metaphors have no special content associated with them. Next week, we're going to look at a range of views that do suppose they have some content and try to answer the question, what determines what that content is? Thank you very much. <laughs>